following episode is about suicide. It includes interviews with a man who has attempted suicide and a woman who has lost a brother to suicide. Whilst this is a sensitive and helpful discussion on suicide, if you feel like now is not the right time for you to listen to it, we recommend pushing pause and choosing another episode. Thanks. Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. My name is Mick Andrews, and today we're talking about suicide. Now, obviously, this is a big, heavy, and quite confronting topic. And if I'm honest, when I started working on this episode, I felt quite daunted, even intimidated by it. But it's also a really important topic, because the sad fact is that year after year, many people take their own lives. The world misses out on the richness of their life and they leave behind a world of pain for their loved ones. And if there's one topic we find it hard to talk about, it's this one. So it's really important we do talk about it. Because the truth is, quite a few of us are already thinking about it anyway. It's estimated that around 1 in 20 of us will have suicidal thoughts in any given year. And an estimated 700,000 people die by suicide worldwide every year. I know that people will be listening to this episode for a variety of reasons, but I just want to take a moment to speak to those of you who are listening because you are having thoughts of suicide. I'd just like to say that you're not alone. Many people before you have found themselves having similar dark thoughts, and a huge amount of them have found their way through the pain and the loneliness and the confusion to a place where life is good again. Soon you'll hear from Joe, who tried to take his own life before going on a journey of healing and finding happiness again. Even though it's a long episode, I encourage you to listen all the way to the end. If at any point you want to talk to someone confidentially, there's a list of helplines in the show notes and at the end of the episode. Our other two guests today are Debbie, who talks about losing her brother to suicide, And of course, our psychologist Nettie, who gives us countless insights into what takes people down the path to suicide, what gets them off that path, what signs to look out for in our loved ones, and how we can talk about this very confronting topic. And by the way, for those of you listening outside Aotearoa, New Zealand, you're going to hear the occasional word in the Māori language, but you'll definitely still understand what people are talking about. The one word worth knowing is that a tangi is a funeral. If you want to get hold of me, you can email mick, that's M-I-C-K, at ayumental.com. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at ayumentalpodcast. This is Joe. My full name is James Joseph Okilani Ulungia Paulo. Obviously, that's not on the passport, but I, I mention all those names because it pays homage to both mum and dad's families. Joe's parents came from Samoa, and he was born and raised here in Aotearoa, New Zealand bit difficult to kind of land on where exactly it is I come from. We bounced around a lot, but I will call home Otara from South Auckland. So quite proud of that upbringing. I, if I was to put a chapter title to my childhood, I would call it running. Hmm. Running. Um, because of what was happening at home, I had a bit of a temper. I think you find this, a lot of young kids, when the home is unstable, they tend to get angry at school. They take out all the energy. Hmm. And one teacher, I think I, I shoved her daughter over because I was... I just got sick of the bullying, and she collared me in the library because don't you ever do that again. You're the teacher's daughter. <laughs> the teacher's daughter. <laughs> Among other challenges, moving around a lot as a kid meant that Joe had to get used to many different versions of his surname. For years it became Paulo, 
Yeah. Oh, gosh. Cringe. A bit. <laughs> so eventually when I went to Otara, man, it was a breath of fresh air. Mm. You know, to hear my name not pronounced as Paulo, but kids are calling out Paulo. Mm. I'm like, bro, that sounds so good to my ears. Joe never really felt settled in his childhood, which influenced how he found his teenage years. Confusing, mm. but lost, but blurred. Never really had the ability to establish relationships. I was a poet. That was my outlet because I could not, I could not land a girl, honestly. <laughs> you thought the poems might help. Couldn't do it, man. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly. So I was like, oh, maybe a girl will like these poems. And then guys at school were asking me to write poems for their girlfriends. <laughs> and I'd get for frust- a fee, for a pie, maybe. <laughs> but it was, it was, fr- it was like I was really frustrated as a teenager because I'd, I'd end up meeting these girls and they're like, oh, so and so read me this poem. It was so beautiful. And I'm going, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you all using the same poems? What if no, they all I would write unique uh, poems for each and every one. And that was, poetry was, that was my escape of being able to express what was going on in my head. Mm. Um, what was going on in your head? Didn't know where I really fit in. I found the teenage years to be very difficult because there were so many different uh, trends as to what was considered cool, mm. what made you accepted. My first day at DLA Psychology, I got mocked all day long because I thought, oh, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to look smart on my first year as a senior. I wore Roman sandals, I had the socks all the way up past my knees, shorts up, tucked in, and I went to school and I just got laughed at. Mm-hmm. I looked at everyone going, no one's wearing Roman sandals. Take <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The mocking I'll, sticks, eh? It sticks, man. And, and like, the teenage years was really troubling because I couldn't quite figure out how to navigate the path of what my mum wanted, what my dad wanted, the pressures of my siblings at the time. And a lot of Pacifica kids will relate to this. Um, I didn't really know where I was going or what it was I really wanted to do. Mm. And then my mum, it was around the time my mum started throwing National Geographic books at me. Um, mum had a whole lot of expectations of, I want you to be a doctor, I want you to be a, someone into medicine, get a high paying job so that when you grow up you can look after us. My mum ruled with an iron thumb. You know, things had to go a certain way. And if you deviated even just one degree, you were going to soon find out what it means to not follow the instructions. You get a National Geographic flying towards your head. Yeah, yeah. We're talking the kind of Africa version, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still on the box. Yeah, yeah. There. yeah. So it was, um, it was overall a loving home, but a very mentally confusing home. And I just rebelled, rebelled so much that I got all the way up to the age of... 17, I ran away from home, mm. chucked all my clothes in a bunch of rubbish bags, threw it over my neighbor's fence. And was there a certain event that caused that? I think really what I, what, I, what I would bring it down to was I didn't want to do what they wanted. My, I, I found the love of performing arts. I got into acting, I got into radio. If I wasn't at uni, I was on Browns Road in Ponsonby inside the new FM studio just doing whatever bum jobs they wanted me to do. And I loved it. That's what I wanted. I could put on a persona and be okay with it as long as the traumatized teenager could hide himself. And at this point in your life, you know, coming out of your teenage years, how would you describe what was going on for you emotionally? Angry. A lot of anger. A lot of hatred too. I, I felt that my childhood was the one that felt robbed of so many different opportunities. Angry that it wasn't fully a childhood. I'm, I'm 11, 12 years old, you know, I'm helping to look after my little niece and nephews. You know, I would often stay home from school and make their milk bottles, 
cook them dinner, breakfast, look after the whole, so all that stuff. And I would look back and I'm like, I never really had that for myself. None of my siblings or family were actually listening to the fact that, hey, you guys have had your shot at life. Can you let me mold my own? Mm. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a lawyer. I love the arts industry, but mum didn't see the fruit in that. And then there was an irony of that later on, which led to me being even more angry when I ended up getting my hands on a folder, a brown folder that was up in my mum and dad's bedroom. Mum asked me to get something out of there and the folder fell out and it was a cutout of all the news clippings on me on the Herald, leading performing arts for the school, doing stuff with radio. It just enraged me and I'm like, you supported me quietly. So she was proud of she all that. She was proud of all of it, but she wasn't you. telling me. I got so angry at my mum and I'm like, all this time, you know, it would have really helped me if you just backed me. So bro, I was angry for a long time. Was hungry for acceptance. Mm hated rejection like anything you know people love me please like me please support me gosh i look back at it now and go pretty desperate that's probably the right word for it but yeah angry sad and pretty desperate what i would say my teenagers would have been Mm. and i mean obviously we are here to talk about suicide Mm. and your attempt at your own life i guess what led up to you getting to a place where you want to take take your own life. I, f- I found the whole world to be hypocritical. And a lot of that was aimed at the church community. And that was, you know, God loves you. Jesus loves you. We're here for you. If you need help from us, you know, come to us. And it was the complete opposite. You know, you go to them and seek help. And they're like, oh, are you tithing? No. Oh, that's why you're struggling. I, I, are you reading your Bible morning and night? No. Well, that's why you're struggling. Are you attending all the church services? Yeah, as best as I can. Oh, but not all of them. No, okay, well, then that's why I'm struggling. So there was all the stuff and I'm going, holy heck, this is the most condemning place I've ever been to, to go to a church and just be told, oh, the only reason why nothing is working for you right now is because you're not doing this, 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 and this. And what I was really trying to say, there are thoughts going on in my head. I don't know how to process those thoughts. And I'm scared that I'm either going to lose my mind or I'm going to do something, which is what I led to 2016. And how would you describe the thoughts that were going on in your head? That I don't belong. It was really, it was really lonely. It was real, real lonely and, and it, it just felt cold. That's probably what I would express it as. It was just cold all the time. I would reach out to people desperate for help. And if, it, if they felt that it was now starting to get uncomfortable, they would back off completely. And now... You, you don't call me, you don't text me, you don't message me, you avoid me. And I'm going, so the problem must be me. And that piled on with a whole lot of other stuff that was going on. Got married in 2009. When we got married, my wife's family just said, sweet, all our hands are off now. She's your responsibility. You're on your own. And my wife has epilepsy. So becoming a caregiver to that extent was quite challenging. And... It was real difficult. You know, I needed to be at my wife's side almost 24-7. And that meant you losing sleep, constantly sacrificing meals to make sure that she was okay. We, we were living off $40 a week. Wow. And then and then $5 of that went to pay the taxi. So we would walk to New World, buy groceries for the week, and then we'd spend $5 coming back. And we had no fridge, no microwave, no utensils, just a mat, pillow, and a blanket. This is a very challenging time and it dawns on me that it's my responsibility to provide 
And then I've just got criticism after criticism from all these people who were happy to criticize, but they weren't willing to help. Mm. And there was a time where it was a phase where we went without for like a month. We were like, we were scabbing off MSD, food banks. So you at that time had a, a lot of pressure and yeah, enormous struggle. Amount. Yeah, it was very heavy, very isolated. And I probably didn't know at the time, no, I didn't know at the time that I was having serious anxiety, enormous amounts of paranoia, bro. <laughs> Stuff that triggered over the years, massive trust issues. But yeah, it got really, got really dark. Oh, there were these different events that were happening. I remember the, the week that led up to it, I was sitting by myself at my desk and it was around the evening and a whole lot of staff were all speaking in Hindi, those Indians. And they were talking, they were looking at me and they were all laughing. Now my mind's not in the right frame at the moment because stuff is going crazy all around me. All I see is a group of Indians talking in their language and they're making fun of me. And then I just snapped. I'm like, can you please speak English? I don't know what you're saying. And they go, oh, we're not talking about you. And I'm like, yeah, but you're looking at me and you're laughing. So I'm putting two and two together. Why are you laughing, but you're all looking at me? And one of the things that made it worse was just two weeks ago, I was told that I'm not allowed to speak Samoan because it makes other people feel uncomfortable. So my mind's going, <laughs> what's going on? It's this all over again. It's Am I the one that's the problem? Yeah, I was, bro, it felt like I was in a fog that particular week. I don't know how it happened, but it felt like I was on autopilot. I had already gone. I was mentally absent so long gone bro like there was nobody home it was just a shell operating on autopilot uh the key moment that made me go i'm done i'm going home and i'm gonna make that that fateful decision it was a look it was a glance that somebody gave me in the room we're having some kind of meeting i look up and i'm just looking around and just acknowledging everyone and then this look of disgust and disdain was what i interpreted in my mind was and then I looked at the next person and my mind was just seeing people just kind of look at me in a kind of like a disgusted way. And I remember just the, the, the fog just got thicker and I sank deeper and deeper and deeper. And I said, I don't belong here anymore. I don't want to be a part of it. This is, I'm done. I've just been criticized in the morning from, uh, from one side of the family. Got a phone call from another family member who criticized me again. But nobody's coming in and going, we want to help you without asking for anything back. Yeah. Mm. All I remember was getting in my car and then I don't remember how I got home. Mm. Yeah. My plan was to go home, go into the spare bedroom at the back where I could appear to have fallen asleep and then my wife to discover me later on at night or later in the morning. Mm. And bro, I, I kid you not, by some miracle, I don't know how, I don't know how, how I got through that because the doctors were saying, that should have ended it on that night. And then um, I don't know what happened that night. Somehow I texted someone and I said, look, I'm going away and I'm not ever coming back. And that person started ringing all the senior managers and telling them something's wrong. And I, I tell you, bro, I swear to God, like everything that should have ended it should have gone to plan. I remember clearly turning my phone off on silent and then I'm fading bro like I'm my consciousness is getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and then I just hear this phone blare and it was my manager <laughs> yeah. this is the guy who I had been told was trying to get rid of me because my mental health was spiraling too much 
and then to have him on the phone say something that actually I had been desperate to hear. The the words were, dude, you're you know, you're larger than life, you're a big character, and I actually value you and I really care about you and I don't want you to do anything stupid. Like you matter a lot to me, Joe. And I sat there going, I'm bro, like my consciousness is getting weaker and weaker and weaker and and I'm just like, why is it taken now for you to say something? Mm. Yeah, bro, that's what um happened on that night. Mm. I actually bro, I actually thought I saw the other side because the room got really bright. Really, really bright. And I thought, oh yeah, here it goes. <laughs> and then bang, bang. I'm like, huh? I'm looking at my phone, I'm like, so all this going on my head, I'm going, what am I doing? Where am I? How did I get here? I don't remember the drive home. I remember being angry. I don't remember getting on the bed. I don't remember. I just remember looking down and seeing what was around me. And for the phone to blare like that, to hear his voice and say those words, it was the words, you matter to me. Yeah. Nobody had ever said that to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm just bawling my eyes out. <laughs> mm. Dad, just all I wanted, never heard it from dad, never heard it from mum, never heard it from my siblings, not my in-laws, not anyone. But this guy, when he said that, and that kind of, yeah, so the seed that I'm going, wait, people do love me, do care about me, I just, I'm too angry and too sad to see it. Mm. And um, I'm glad, it, I'm glad it failed. What followed from that, from that experience was what I can only describe as the journey to actual healing. We'll hear about Joe's healing journey soon. But first, let's go to our psychologist, Nettie Cullen. Starting with a question I felt a little bit self-conscious asking. I know this question could almost be offensive in its simplicity, but why do people take their own lives? Hmm. It's interesting that you, you feel like it's a simple question, but it's not really a simple question because... It's a very individual process. But basically, people take their own lives because of psychological pain. And mm. it's the pain of excessively felt shame or guilt or grief or loneliness or despair or fear or humiliation or angst or whatever it might be for that person. And the idea is that that pain becomes so great that it's perceived to be unbearable. Mm. Where I'm at right now feels so unbearable that I'll just do whatever it takes to stop that pain. Mm. And usually it isn't, there isn't really a thought about what happens after I die, for instance. In fact, most people who are thinking about suicide are not wanting to die per se. They're wanting to escape Mm. where they are right now. Escape the pain. Escape what feels unbearable and hopeless right now. Mm. And so if people could see another solution, another way to deal with that pain and suffering, most people would choose that. They would choose life if they could see another way. So not only have things become unbearable and the pain has become unbearable, they perceive it to be inescapable. Inescapable, and part of the part of the problem there is that our um, our perspective can narrow and shrink when we're under extreme pressure and when we're in what feels like unbearable pain. Our capacity to to get perspective and think outside of this particular 
moment of suffering is is compromised. So we can't see outside of that dark place that we feel trapped in in that moment. It's all consuming. It's all consuming. And it rubs off of any perspective. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. I imagine that having suicidal thoughts would scare most people. Are they something to be afraid of? Um, suicide, the whole topic of suicide stirs up pretty intense emotions mm. for us in general, right? It's a very confronting topic mm. and it is quite terrifying. We're talking about life and death. It is quite frightening yeah. and and perhaps it should be in that we're talking about a permanent action that there's no coming back from. So the stakes are quite high. Mm. I guess, too, for people who are, who are thinking about suicide, sometimes we don't even realise what we're thinking about until we start talking about it or we start reflecting on what's going on for us individually. And once that starts coming out, it can be quite confronting. Realising the point that we've got to mm. in our thinking can be quite startling. And in some ways that can sometimes be quite good because a person might realize what's at stake. When you say once it starts coming out, do you mean if someone talks about it with someone? Yeah, I think if someone starts talking about it or maybe starts journaling or, or somehow taking the thoughts that might be... Semi-conscious. Yeah, not completely formed. Mm. Their feelings and urges and longings all mishmashed up together without a lot of clarity mm. and that is why sometimes talking about it can be so valuable. I'm sure we've all had that experience of once you start speaking about something out loud you get a whole different perspective on it mm. and that's true for suicide, it's true for all sorts of things that we might be wrestling with mm. and f that can be actually really quite motivating for someone to go oh wow look at where I find myself on the edge of something that's actually pretty significant. Pretty serious. Yeah. Hi, it's Mick here. I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit, and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to gofundme.com and search the words Are You Mental? That's gofundme.com and search Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. Here's Joe again, talking about how things started to shift after his suicide attempt. What shifted for me was there were, there were people around me who now realised just how bad of a world I was in, and they actually started to connect. Some of them did come forward and look, we're so sorry, we realised that our, our teasing wasn't very helpful, and yeah, the, the whole work environment moved, and I'm really thankful for the job because, you know, all the, the leaders sat down and said, we're concerned about him, what can we do to make his life a lot more workable at work and more peaceful and stuff like that. The things that I was going through at home, they started making changes that actually accommodated for my wife needing sleep. They gave me a later shift that started at 10.30. They allowed me to work 10.30 to 7. They gave me time to go to the gym. And I had a colleague who would watch my phone, my work phone, while I was in the gym. So Great. they started putting in place things that would help me. My manager started following up with me on, on a regular basis. Like, are you okay? You know, is everything all right? If I disappeared for too long, he was calling me. He was making, like, just the, the wraparound support started to pick up at work. 
My wife's family got very supportive. Her brother rang me when he found out what, what I had tried to do and just fed word of encouragement and just started realising the challenges that I'm going through. So people started realising, oh, hang on, we actually need to do less talking and do more actioning around supporting Joseph and Trinity and making sure that they're okay. I wasn't really connecting with my own family at the time. That was still challenging. Uh, and then I ended up being part of a men's group, Kiwi Daddies. Kiwi Daddies. Kiwi Daddies. And that, bro, was probably the lifeline for me that I so, so needed. I met a group of amazing men who, uh, bro, we weren't starving anymore. They were dropping off food parcels. They were they were inviting me and my wife to all these different events. They were inviting us over for dinner and just real support. I had someone to talk to every night, you know, when I was going through and realised that it, it created a real safe space to actually start talking about, hey, this is what's going on in my head. This is what I'm facing. How do I deal with it? At work, the support from Joe's colleagues kept growing until a group of them were like family to each other. And even though Joe doesn't work there anymore, they're still in close contact. We still have a family chat group to this day, <laughs> you know, where we still talk to each other. We check in on each other and sometimes it'll go quiet, but they're there. If you need something, they're there for you. Wow. What does that mean to you? Bro, it means the world to me. Because these are people who have seen me at my absolute worst. To still there be there, bro, we still love you and we're still there for you and we're still going to stand by you. But you have to do your part, as in if you're going through something, you need to talk to us. Because they always tell me, bro, like, bro, you're too smart to be struggling, bro. You're too, you've got all this in your head, go do something with it. And to hear that value, bro, see, I was missing this for so long, eh? Let's go back to Nettie now. And I've just asked her what life situations or life events seem to precede someone taking their own life. So we know, and, and I guess here's the thing, there, there's certain risk factors, there's certain events or experiences or circumstances that might be understood to be risk factors for people. And generally they involve some kind of loss, right? Whether it be a loss of relationship, a loss of security, a loss of independence, a loss of hopes, dreams, a loss of ideals. Um, a loss of autonomy. A loss of autonomy. It could be any kind of loss, mm. really. But it's the individual's experience of that loss that is significant. Mm. So we know, say, that, that depression, the experience of depression, does increase the risk of suicide. Mm. And we could understand that in terms of a loss of hope or a loss of joy, a loss of pleasure, you know, that, those kinds of things. But we also know that the vast majority of people who are depressed don't kill themselves. Mm. And we also know that people kill themselves who aren't depressed. And so while we have an idea of what some of the risk factors might be, they're too general to be able to predict accurately who will ultimately end up taking their lives and who won't. Mm. So what I find a more useful question is not what are the risk factors, but what is a person's experience of what they've been through? How has it affected? What meaning have they made of their experience? And how has it affected their quality of life? Mm -hmm. How has it affected how they are experiencing their life in that moment? Mm. Sometimes I give the example of a, a loss of a job for one person might be the opening of an opportunity into a new area but for another person it might be devastating mm. and so the event itself it's not insignificant but it is 
what it means to that person and how they experience it that's most important in terms of understanding risk and i feel like for me this all leads to wanting to know what are the signs what are the signs what, yeah. what can we look out for in our friends and family because that's what we want to know isn't it we want mm. to know when someone could be at risk of suicide mm. yep and people will consciously or unconsciously be telling their story all the time one way or another and the thing with suicide is that very seldom will a person come out and say i'm not doing so well in fact i'm not doing so well that i've actually been thinking about killing myself more often you will they might not even have that thought clearly in their head like we just spoke about more often you'll see things in people's behavior you'll see things in how they're acting you'll see things in what they're saying the kinds of feeling or the messages that are coming through in their dialogue you'll see things in the way that they present themselves physically you'll see things in the way that they you'll get a sense of their feelings if you like right? when you say things what what things so somebody's behavior might you might see a lack of energy you might see a lack of motivation or despondency you might be able to see in somebody a lethargy or a, a change in how they might normally be behaving you might see them taking less care of themselves sleeping a whole lot more their appetite changing their interest changing so you might be noticing that there's something different in the way that a person's engaging in the world when you're feeling hopeless and despairing and overwhelmed that comes through it mm. comes through in the way that you carry yourself mm. but it'll come through to also in our dialogue you know if you listen to somebody speaking you might be hearing themes of hopelessness you might be hearing themes of oh well what's the point can't be bothered anymore some of those sorts of things it indicates that they're not doing okay so the other thing that we might be able to pick up is what's being expressed in terms of their emotional experience you know a person listening to sad songs a person writing poetry doing artwork expressing an emotional state through nonverbal kinds of communication sometimes it's happening right in front of you and you can't see it because they could all appear happy and everything's fine everything's great i don't know it's it's real I don't know how to describe it, but there's a look in someone's eye that I would know something's off. Mm. And I, get, I don't know whether that's an empath type of thing, but there's an emptiness and there's a sorrowness in someone's eyes that I can recognize. Mm. Yeah, not always right, but... So there's an element of trusting your gut. Yeah, yeah. Something's off. This person's essence, their, their life feels funny. You know, obviously some of the most obvious ones is they don't communicate, they isolate themselves. They are hard to get a hold of. Or sometimes everything just seems too good to be true. And I'm like, oh, I know your story, bro. Something's off. But that's a tricky one, bro. But that's one of the dead giveaways is isolating. Or hints. Sometimes they'll message dark and gloomy things. Like, we'll be attentive to that stuff. Like, ask the questions, bro, what do you mean by that? You know, oh, bro, I wish I could just disappear for a bit. What do you mean by that? But I wish I could just go away and never come back. What do you mean by that? Don't just brush it off as, yeah, bro, I hear you, bro, yeah. Actually be inquisitive. Ask, what do you mean by that? 
to ask the questions. Mm. And then that question, bro, are you thinking about suicide? I know it's scary to ask, but you have to, bro. Mm. And if you have to, ask it again. The kind of crunch point when it comes to talking about suicide is that usually the only way to know whether somebody is having thoughts of suicide is to ask them if they are having thoughts of suicide. Especially if you've got an, uh, an unease in your gut, right? Mm. I, I think we've talked at other times about how much I trust my gut when it comes to talking with people about what they're going through. But if somebody is clearly struggling and they're speaking about hopelessness and despair and they're expressing through verbal and non-verbal means that they're not okay, mm. the only way we're going to know if suicide is a risk is to ask them about suicide. Mm. It's unlikely that a person will volunteer that themselves. Mm. That makes perfect sense to me, but I just briefly imagine my friends and family and what it would be like to actually ask them that question. Mm. And it feels very hard. Hard for you? Yeah, for me to do. Yeah. Why is it hard for you to do? Oh, gosh. It's just such a confronting topic. Mm. That's exactly right. But I'm curious to know, is there, do you know a way of phrasing it that is like not as hard to kind of say or a way of putting it that isn't as confronting? That, but but that is still has a clarity yeah. to it. It's an interesting thing because we're tiptoeing around um, trying to do this in a respectful but clear way. Um, absolutely. I think there are ways of couching it in a way that's going to be easier to say but also easier to hear. So what we want to be asking is, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? But if we can express to the person why that's a question we want to ask, that can help make it make sense. So I might say to a person, gosh, there's an awful lot that you've been through. And I'm hearing you talk about feeling really hopeless, really helpless, really trapped, and like you don't know any other way out. I've, I'm seeing you looking really, really sad, and that makes me worry. And I'm wondering if you've had thoughts of suicide, if you've thought about killing yourself mm. so that puts things in a frame that maybe doesn't feel quite as abrupt mm. yeah you, you you say what you've been witnessing and how it has been concerning you mm. it's it's relational yeah is it better to or is it important that we say suicide or taking your own life or killing yourself rather than say have you been thinking about harming yourself right yes it absolutely is because we want to be really clear about what we're talking about. Mm. And then that person has to either lie or, yes. or say. Yeah, right? That's exactly right. And incidentally, sometimes people don't realise that suicide is harming themselves. Well, actually, if you ask somebody, you're thinking about hurting yourself, they might say no, because this is not going to hurt. This is actually going to stop the pain. Yeah. So you want to know... Am I talking about suicide or are we not talking about suicide? Mm. And if I ask in a vague and unclear way, I'm not going to know that, but I'm also going to give a message that says, oh, this is a subject that we can't really talk openly about. Mm. And 
that's not the message that we want to give when we're talking about suicide. We want to be giving the message that we can talk about this stuff, this tough stuff. Mm. We can talk about painful, confronting, difficult things. And what we hear from people over and over and over and over again is that when somebody asks them if they're having thoughts of suicide, the overwhelming feeling is one of relief, that mm. finally I'm going to get to be able to talk about this. And this person has given me permission to talk about it. I don't have to worry about their feelings because they're clearly up for it. They're prepared to have this tough conversation, which is really powerful mm. and really important. Mm. And just to cover this off, I feel like there's a few euphemisms that float about. I think of maybe my parents' generation and things like, oh, you wouldn't do something stupid, would mm. you? Yeah. What message does that give? Mm. It gives, first of all, what you're thinking about is stupid and why would I want to talk to you about something that you think is stupid? And you're also saying, I don't want to hear about it. You're not thinking about doing something stupid, are you? Mm. There's not an invitation there to be open and honest about what I'm thinking and feeling and going through. There's an invitation to avoid and shut it down and, and help the other person feel better. So for the record, we're deleting that from the, from the vocab list? Absolutely. Please do. So I'm Debbie Corrine. I live in the far north. I grew up in West Auckland and I'm a writer and a mum and a gardener, a beach bum. This is Debbie. She lives right up near the very top of New Zealand. Back in 2006, her little brother George took his own life at the age of 32 turning her world upside down and sending her on a gruelling journey of grief and eventually healing. 18 years after her brother's death, she can sit down with me and talk calmly and fondly about the man they all called Horry, even recalling when he was just a toddler, clumsily walking around in nappies. He was the cutest little fella, and I'm not just saying that. He was adorable. But as he got older and grew, he became my biggest brother. Like He was kind of like twice the size of me. He was a big burly guy, and I, even though he was my youngest brother, I thought of him as my big brother, mm. the brother that looked out for me and was the uncle to my sons and took care of us. And we had some tough years being mm. a solo mum and stepped up and was like a big brother then to my sons as well. He was cool. I mean, you know, he used to come and hang out with me at my place and smoke cigarettes and listen to music. And then we'd go out together. Yeah, we hung around a lot. Nice. <laughs> he, was, he was a good friend as well. We were really close. Mm. One of my best friends mm. in life. When Horry was 19, he just moved to Auckland to pursue a career in music. And our dad just passed away suddenly from a heart attack. Mm. Really suddenly, like pretty much dropped dead. He was 54, so we're all still quite young, all of us. It was mm. way too soon to um, lose our dad. And our dad was a really, um, he was the glue. It was help anyone shoot off his back, all that type of thing. Mm. So um, I do know that he found it really hard to talk about dad, even in later years in life. Thinking back, I think that was key. One of the key moments in his life when maybe it was too tough, something that he couldn't deal with. Can you tell me what you remember 
and what you're comfortable telling me about the day you found out. Oh, I will never forget that day. It was just like any other day. I had come home with my little boys. I must have picked them up from school or something. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon and I heard a car pull up outside and the dogs are barking. And I thought, hmm, who could this be? I had this funny little feeling. It was George. And I thought, oh, it's Horry. He's come to see me. And I looked out the window and it was a cop car. And I went, oh, that's not Horry. And my thought was they must have come to the wrong house. And I thought, they've come down the wrong driveway. They haven't come to see me. And so I went out and greeted them and the dogs ran inside and jumped all over the couch. And they kind of went, oh, George Corrine? And I said, yeah, that's my brother. And they said, oh, we're sorry, we've got some bad news for you. And I was expecting them to say something like, oh, he's been <clears throat> hurt in a car accident or something. Or not what they said next. And they said, um, they said, we're very sorry to have to tell you, but he's dead. And I started crying. And I said, how? how? How did he die? And they went, um, he suicided. We found him um, out at Tokerau Beach. And I, I just started screaming, doing that really hysterical screaming that you see people do sometimes. And I think what I was actually trying to do was I was trying to catch my breath. It had hit me so hard that I think I was possibly on the point of maybe fainting from the shock and um, the feeling that I had at that time I'll never forget that awful feeling it was like a, it was almost like a physical cracking inside of you could probably say my heart breaking it was so overwhelming so from then on they came inside and took some details and I kept saying to them it can't be him You've, you've got it wrong. And they've read out the number plate of the car, the make of the car. They described him. They said he's wearing a Ponamu. And I went, yeah, that sounds like him. That's his car. But it just can't be him. I couldn't get my head around it. Mm. And they were said, we're fairly certain it's him. And, I went, and they said, we need someone to identify him. And I said, well, I better do it. Because if you've got the wrong person... I don't want my mum, <laughs> this mm. is me, talking to the cops, telling them they've done their job wrong. Um, so I went, and, and even as we were walking into the undertakers and I'm saying to this cop, I still think you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> and he's going, honestly, I don't think we have. I went, okay then. And of course they hadn't got the wrong guy. It was Horry. And um, yeah... There he was. I can still see him lying there. He was, and he was so quiet because he was this larger-than-life guy, always laughing and talking, joking, singing. He's so quiet. Yeah. So from then on, it was you know out to tell mum. I had to ring my two oldest sons. It was night time by then, so they'd come at four o'clock in the afternoon. It was. Just the longest night, um, just the longest night. Mm. Yeah, those were really tough times, <laughs> really tough days, long nights. Yeah, real heartbreaking stuff, eh? Mm. Um, 
there were a few things that we kept saying to ourselves. One of the things I, we kept saying amongst ourselves and the close family was, I don't know why Horry thought that this would be okay, why he thought we'd be okay with this. What? Yeah, there were a lot of questions. Gosh, there were just so many. Yeah. My little brother, eh? <laughs> yeah. And can you describe how the next weeks, what your journey was like in those next weeks after his passing? Oh, hell. Just hell. Really dark. There was such a swirl of emotions and none of them were good. Like we talk and talk about the happy times and the good times. But everything was so tinged with sorrow because everything was now a memory. None of that good stuff was going to happen again for us. Mm. No more music, no more jokes, no more hangies. Everything that he was was gone. Do you now look back and think he was experiencing depression? Yeah, yeah. He hit it really well. Because I knew that he was a soft guy. He wasn't... My brother and I were a bit more streetwise. Um, Sounds like he had a kind of sensitivity about him. Real sensitivity, yeah. What you often find with musicians and artists and writers. Because yes, yes. <laughs> that's how they create eh? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he never lost the softness of Horry or, or Georgie, we sometimes call him. He never lost that softness. Sounds like he didn't have a place to kind of express his sensitivity. Yeah, I think so. I think for guys, it would have been a sign of weakness that you weren't coping. Mm. You weren't toughing it out. Debbie talks more about what her journey of grief and healing looked like soon. But first, I was curious to ask Nettie whether there's a sequence of stages that people go through when it comes to suicidality. I'm guessing that it starts with like a fleeting thought of, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to live anymore. Mm, or yeah. this is too much. It'd be better if I wasn't here. Yeah, and then goes from there. Is there a, is there kind of a known? Yeah, there's a bit of a trajectory. Mm. Yeah, so the act of suicide is very visible and confronting, but the pathway towards that point is often very very private. Mm. But it does start, like you say, with just kind of maybe vague thoughts. Better if I'm not here. This is all too hard. I just wish I didn't have to wake up tomorrow morning and go through all of this again. So there can be vague fleeting thoughts that might develop into something with a little bit more form and substance. Like, what if I wasn't here? What might that look like? Mm. And then that might progress into what we call sort of threats, you know, the things that start coming out of the mouth that aren't necessarily just the things that are sort of whirling around in my head but I might say oh, you'd be better off without me I might start putting those things out there mm. start expressing things to other people and those are often things that are said and heard but not really taken seriously because they feel like they just throw away mm. comments and but we should take them seriously I think we should always take them seriously. Mm. What's the worst that can happen? Mm. If well, if you go, oh, what's that about? What mm. do you mean if you weren't here? What mm. are you talking about, right? Giving an opportunity 
for the person to be heard and to start recognizing what they themselves are saying. Mm. Then there might be what we've kind of suicidal gestures, if you like, like a little bit of risk-taking behavior, a bit of kind of toying or playing with... Danger? Yeah. Playing with knives, playing with guns, playing chicken. There are kind of um, carelessness that might indicate that, oh, does it matter if I live or die? And then it can, it can become more intentional. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about suicide is that we have a natural sort of resistance to hurting ourselves, to harming ourselves or killing ourselves. There's, there's a, a natural mm. survival instinct, if you like, but that can be eroded. Mm. So if I'm pushing myself to the edge a little bit, you know, playing with drugs and alcohol, playing with risky behaviors, it can erode desensitize that yeah. survival instinct exactly mm. yeah i know that in some training i had we were often taught to ask do you have a plan mm. is that kind of the next stage well yeah because the more planned something is the more risk there is essentially in terms of how likely it might be to actually happen mm-hmm. mm. what do we know about what can take people off that trajectory, off that path? What can redirect people from going down the path to suicide? Mm. Well, when somebody is thinking about suicide, they are more commonly focused on stuff that has happened previously in their life, something that's in the past, Mm. painful things that they've been through. Mm. They've got their blinkers on, if you like, and all they can see is the hopelessness, Mm the stuff in the past that they're having trouble escaping from, and often that sense of being very, very alone. So suicide, when somebody is consumed with thoughts of suicide, it's often very, very, very isolating, right? It's very disconnecting. Mm. So anything that shifts a person's focus from being consumed with thoughts of the past and hopelessness and death and aloneness can start broadening the perspective and that's what we want to do essentially is provide an opportunity for a person's perspective to shift if they're feeling very very alone what we want to be doing is starting to connect them and that might be just with you in that moment Mm. right it might be just you're this person who's starting to have a conversation with them rather than that preoccupation with the past and hopelessness and helplessness and despair. Oftentimes what I find is that just having an opportunity to talk about what's going on, I want to say can be enough to shift, but it's actually, it can be more than enough to start that shift, Mm. right? Because that conversation, that engagement with another person starting to process things that have been swirling around inside my head, starting to express that and being heard and being listened to and being understood can do a lot to alleviate the pain and distress that a person is experiencing. And the isolation. And the isolation. And it's amazing actually what can happen when a person starts feeling cared for and understood and Mm. listened to. Mm. Being able to join with another human being means that the suffering is alleviated 
we often talk about a burden shared as a burden halved and all those kinds of cliches that we throw around, but it's actually true. When I get to talk over with somebody who cares and is prepared to listen anything that's going on in my life, it shifts it. It shifts it for me. When I get to talk through a dilemma or a problem I have, talking it through changes it for me, changes my perspective, changes my feelings about it and gives me an opportunity to look at it differently and find different ways of approaching it. So the most powerful thing that we can do is connect Mm. with a person who's at risk of suicide. Mm. And I guess the challenge to all of us is to meet people where they're at and to be willing to step in and make space for whatever it is they're experiencing. Exactly, exactly. Because we don't want them to be experiencing that. Mm -hmm. We'd rather that they're feeling positive about life, rather that they're feeling hopeful and looking forward to the future. And it's confronting and hard and almost don't want to face the idea that they might be experiencing that level of despair. That's exactly right, which is why we'll often say, oh, for goodness sake, you've got so much to live for. Mm. You've got so many good things in your life. And what happens then is we just miss them. And they just feel all the more shame for feeling the way they are feeling. But what we need to be doing is going, what is it you're experiencing? And even though it might be hard to hear, make space for it. Yeah. Tell me, why? Why are you thinking about suicide? Why are you thinking about that now? What's going on for you that, that you've got to that point? Help me understand. Is it okay to say, you know, that makes me really sad that someone I love this much Mm. is thinking about that? Mm. Is it? It depends really on the person. I I mean, that's a tricky one because you don't want to make it about you. True. (laughs) Very true. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, the, the reality is that 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 actually might be a valuable thing for that person to hear, but we've got to be careful that Mm. we're not making it about us. Keep the focus on them and try to understand. Mm their experience. Mm. People make that decision because they don't feel valued, they don't feel that they belong, and more importantly, they're not feeling heard. And so you get to the point in life where your absolute existence feels like it has absolutely no worth and value, and therefore the only way to add value is to remove yourself. It's a weird mathematical equation. The world is mean to me if I remove myself to punish the world for what it's done to me, then sweet. If I remove myself, I don't have to suffer pain anymore. Or, that's the third one, I'm hurting other people and I don't want to hurt them anymore, so I'm going to remove myself because I'm a burden. But I think it's it's so hard for us to grasp what that means. What does it mean to feel valued? What does it mean to feel connected? What does it mean to feel heard? Without adding all the scientific jargon to it, to be able to sit down with somebody and have a good yarn, and not necessarily take on that person's mummy because it's not, it's not what you're supposed to do. It's giving them a space where they can share what they need to share, knowing that they won't be judged or discriminated against, and to be able just to go blurp out into the atmosphere, that sink to the ground, and then you to be the trusted person who will not go out and repeat that. Four years ago, Joe got a job as an intake coordinator for community housing. And I would assess whānau for two hours at a time, up to six times a day. And then I learned that people in life who are going through hard times all want the same thing. It's someone to listen to them, someone who can hear them, and do the best they can to relate to them. 
without being judged and discriminated against mm. because of their poor choices, because of their current situation. And that mm. process you just talked about, where someone who's in that dark, hopeless, isolated space where they're not coping, if they get a chance to have that conversation, to have that chat, to offload what's going on inside them in a trusted mm. space with someone who listens and doesn't judge and doesn't expect anything from them. Mm. What power does that have? I can only describe what I saw in the eyes of other people. So I assessed, assessed about 2,000 plus families and I discovered that when they were given that space, but it's like seeing a completely different person or a different, completely different group of people. They came in and they brought darkness with them when they walked out, they could take on the world. The power of doing that has the ability to shift someone from feeling that life is impossible to life is possible. And it created this atmosphere where if you came inside for an assessment, you were sitting around a fire to share your story and all of the hurt and the pain gets put into that fire. And it's an almost kind of like a sacrificial experience where we're going to throw all the mum mind now that's been burdening us and we're going to start talking about the dream. And it's amazing where we knew that the biggest question that has helped a lot of families in those discussions that have helped them break through, and it sounds real cheesy, what are one or two things you've always wanted to do, but because life is so life, it always got in the way? What are those two things that are always burning in the back of your mind? And probably the stories that would come out. Oh, I've always wanted to get in the carpentry, I'm a solo mum with three kids, I don't have time, but I've always wanted to be a nanny, I've wanted to be a nurse, I want to go and study, you know, but I've got all this that's going on. And then you start asking them, what are the consequences of that not happening? Now you're connecting pain to the dream. And they would go away and realise that it hurts more to constantly put the dream in the back pocket than being stuck in the treadmill of the merry-go-round of hardship bit of a run around to that question, but bro, coming in, beaten up by life, and then walking out, going, far, bro, I feel mean, bro, I feel amazing. And the theme was always the same. It's the first time I've had someone listen to me, hear my story, and I feel that, and I walk out, I don't feel I'm being judged. They feel empowered, they feel valued, and they feel heard. The word value, bro. As you're hearing, Joe has been actively involved in the healing journey of hundreds of other people. Him and his wife have even started a charitable trust called You Matter, focusing on suicide prevention and supporting those bereaved by suicide. Their goal is to help people turn their stories of trauma into stories of strength and resilience. But what about Joe himself? What were the key things that led to his healing? Having mentors, having mentors and teachers who generally want you to succeed. You know, I came across a guy named Daniel in August. He saw me posting up my little woe is me on LinkedIn. <laughs> and he reached out to me because, look, he goes, look, I've been reading your content and I've, I've been moved by it and I'd be, I really want to get around you and kind of support you and find some solutions to what's going on. And they've given me what I wish I had earlier. What's that? And that was people who I could go to for perspective, people who I could blurt out all my problems and my challenges, and they would come back and they'll give me what I need to hear as well as some affirmation and some support. I would say they have given me a spine, a backbone. That's what they've given me, bro. Mm. Strength, resilience, perseverance, encouragement, 
and life. They'll hear what I have to say and they just speak life into into me as a person, but at the same time keeping the conversation real to go, this is the consequences if you make that decision and here's our perspective. And yeah. that is something yeah, that I've never had before. Hmm. But it's powerful. Someone who's making time for you. What are some common myths about suicide? Mm. The biggest and I think the most significant myth around suicide is that if I talk to somebody about suicide, I will put the idea in their head and somebody who wasn't suicidal before will now become suicidal mm. because I have raised it. We know that's not the case. We know that me asking somebody if they're having a thoughts of suicide is not significant enough to make that transition between a life worth living to a life not worth living, essentially. Well, and it's more like, likely to be a catharsis to them absolutely. to be able to talk about it. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we hear overwhelmingly from people is that being able to talk about it is a relief. Mm. Right? Other myths about suicide, <clears throat> that a person who's thinking about suicide is weak or selfish or just can't hack it. Oh, right? gosh, yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. And so, I mean, and the selfishness thing too, because the reality is if somebody dies by suicide, it does hurt people who are left behind. That person is not typically wanting to hurt people, not, sometimes not even aware of the pain that they might leave behind. Often they think they're doing everybody a favor mm. by taking themselves out of the picture. And that judgment or that assessment of somebody who's thinking about suicide only creates more distance, only disconnects and avoids connecting with that person around their despair. Their, their despair. Yeah. And it is only likely to make them feel worse about themselves. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I've got a whole list of myths about suicide. One is that if people are talking about it, if people talk about suicide, they won't actually do it. That's a commonly held myth that if someone's talking about it, they're just attention seeking and they're not, they're not actually going to do it. They're just waxing lyrical. Right. People who talk about suicide do sometimes do it. People who talk about suicide may be attention seeking because they need attention. Mm. One of the other myths about suicide is that it occurs without warning. You can never tell. And we know actually that that's not the case, that for the vast majority of suicides, there are indications along the path that if, that if we know what to look for, that can be recognized and, and seen. Very often what we experience when somebody that we know dies by suicide, it often is a shock. Right. Mm. Their private journey has suddenly become very public, but we hadn't tuned in previously to what might have been going on for them. So it seems like there was no warning. It seems like it came out of the blue. But if we had tuned in, we might have seen things beforehand. And often when I speak with people who've been bereaved by suicide, one of the struggles that they have is recognizing after the fact what some of the indications might have been, mm. that if they'd only noticed, if they'd only seen, they might have behaved differently or they might have done something differently. And the level of self-blame that must occur in that situation must be just oh, unbearable. It's huge. It's huge. 
but what we can learn from those experiences is that we can pay attention we can tune in now that we know what we need to pay attention to there's a lot of guilt there's a lot of guilt around suicide for i think for family members and friends of why didn't we see what was happening why didn't we see this coming why don't we do something? I think there was a really huge one for me was, I, I just, I don't know if I'm being arrogant and thinking that if I had have gone and seen him in those last few days, I might've been able to talk him out of it. Maybe in my false hope and in, in, in denial, I, I told myself I could have saved him. <laughs> Why didn't I save him? So you almost experienced a season of self-blame yeah huge season that was probably the biggest thing for me because we've been so close and I loved him so much if I loved him so much why wasn't I looking after him better and why why couldn't I have seen this coming and why couldn't I have stopped him and um, so there was a huge part for me and and just so sad I was so sad that I didn't have him anymore one of my best friends had gone. I felt I was almost going to die from a broken heart. I'm not being melodramatic. It was so intense and so painful. There was no let up. And just trying to figure out life without him. Mm-hmm. And what do, you, what do you know about how things were uh, emotionally for George throughout his 20s and the start of his 30s? That's probably conversations we didn't have in hindsight because he always seemed like he was doing okay. But there were times I did think to myself, it doesn't look like he's doing okay and should I say something? But then I didn't and then the next time I'd see him, he'd be okay again. Yeah, so they weren't um, conversations that we had, yeah. I don't know why. And it's brothers and sisters too. Like if Hori had been a sister, we probably would have talked about that stuff because no disrespect to guys, but we all know that ladies talk about (laughs) everything. (laughs) And like I say, in the conversations after Dad died, my mum and I were able to easily talk about Dad and how we were feeling and have a good cry because it's okay for ladies to um, have a cry, eh? It's almost expected. But for guys, we've got to have that stiff upper lip and... Yeah, it's an unfortunate... We'll have a little cry in the corner, bro, but, you know, make it quick. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to see it. <laughs> no, it's, it shouldn't it's be that way. It's a pretty unhelpful part of our culture, isn't it? It is. That toughness we're expected to have that involves not sharing what we're going through. Mm. It's not good. I've heard that when a family member takes their own life, that there can be a lot of like shame and stigma around suicide for, mm. for family members. Did you experience that? Yeah, yeah, we did. I remember when it first happened the next day and <laughs> my mum, God bless her, she said to me, do people know what happened to Hori? And I said, Mum, everybody knows. And she goes, oh. And for a long time, she told people he died in a car accident. Wow. 
And not because I think she was ashamed of what he'd done, but it was just too hard. The conversation's too hard. And there is that shame in that, why weren't we looking after him properly? And people say that to you. There's, there's a list of things that people say to you that should be banned. Things like, what the hell did he do that for? Or how selfish, what a bloody selfish thing to do. And I'm kind of like, come on, like, give the guy a break. They think it's a selfish thing to do. I, I don't think it is at all. It's the end of your tether. And I think possibly people think that loved ones and family are better off without them. Mm. Uh, I hope they don't, but I, I think they do. I... You mentioned you talk about the kind of support people gave and, and the lack of. How would you describe helpful support that you got? And how would you describe unhelpful (laughs) support? (laughs) So helpful support is the people, like I mentioned, my best friend, Lightning. That's That's my nickname for her. She came in. Because she's there in a flash? She's there in a flash. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't muck around. It's a good friend to have. She's a great friend, yeah. She stayed and she said to me when she eventually went home, she said, I want you to ring me every morning. Just ring me. And just let me know you're okay. And some mornings I would, I couldn't talk, and so she'd say, "Is that you, sweetie?" And I, and I just go, "Yeah." And that went on for probably a good couple of months. What did it mean to you to have someone wanting to do that for you? It meant that someone cared, and someone was still there for me, and someone wasn't judging me for being what I perceived as I was a bad sister. Hmm. And she wasn't judging Hori either, despite him taking off too soon (laughs) (laughs) and for breaking their their best friend's heart. Hearing you describe what you were like in that first year and then sitting with you today, I can tell there's been a massive journey of healing has gone on between those two Mm. how do you heal from something this big Mm. what does that healing process look like yeah it's so huge and it's almost like when i speak about debbie in 2006 it's in the third person you know different person it's a different person it's kind of like grief took real debbie away for quite a few years and then brought her back and she was different but still real debbie Um, one of the best things that somebody said to me she lost her brother to suicide she said to me "Um, you're going to have to be really kind to yourself Mm. in the coming days and I've never forgotten that and it's something that I always address other people with that big loss I say be kind to yourself, be gentle don't have any expectations on yourself and staying safe what do you mean staying safe? Just being amongst my friends and my family, my close friends, the people that cared and weren't going to judge me for anything, ask anything of me. Didn't put too much on myself for a couple of years, really. Just stayed home and healed. (laughs) How common is it to have suicidal thoughts? Mm. Well, the interesting thing is that people actively don't communicate thoughts of suicide. So 
it's a little bit tricky to work out how many people might be having thoughts of suicide, but what we know is it's far more common than most people think. And estimates are that around one in 20 or five or 6% of people in any one year will be having thoughts of suicide. Mm. So in New Zealand, we're talking like 250,000 people a year might have thoughts of suicide. Mm. How effective is therapy when it comes to feeling suicidal? Mm. Well, the good news is that therapy is effective. If people can recognize that there is an issue, um, then we can work on it. We can absolutely work on it. Therapy works. Whatever the issue is that's underlying a person's thoughts of suicide. And that's varied. So one person's reason for thinking about suicide will be completely different to another person's reasons for thinking about suicide. Like I remember hearing Sinead O'Connor once said that a sunny day was a reason for her to think about suicide, mm. which for most of us seems bizarre. But when she was asked more about it, she said that she didn't deserve to be alive on such a beautiful day. Wow. If a person's had thoughts of suicide, the underlying issue is what needs to be addressed in order for long-term healing, long-term recovery and growth. So therapy is very effective because a lot of how we've ended up where we are when we're having thoughts of suicide is complex and it's interwoven with all of our past experiences and our relationships and the meaning that we make of life and, and all sorts of things. And being able to sit down and really nut that out mm -hmm. can be incredibly powerful and helpful for a person. It absolutely works. In our conversation, Joe and I got talking about male culture and what aspects of it can be unhelpful when it comes to suicide. Get past the hard and up stuff. It doesn't make you weak to talk about stuff that you're going through. Just because you're a man, just because you may be the husband in the marriage, doesn't mean that you have to be the pillar of strength all the time. Men are human beings. Remember that you bleed, you get tired, you get restless, you get sick, you have emotions. That happens. You're a human being, you're a living creature. You have the same level of emotions or the same type of emotions as a woman. Stop thinking that we're Superman, we can handle it all. And I'm, I'm only saying that because it's something that I would say to myself and someone that the people that have said it to me is, so bro, you may be big, buff and strong, I don't know, lanky, skinny, whatever. You being a man doesn't mean that you have to be strong 24-7. Allow yourself the ability to be human. It's no shame. What cultural or societal norms do you think can be unhelpful and might even increase the likelihood of someone taking their own life. Mm. Yeah, that the idea of what's expected of us in terms of how we're meant to be in society, some of those attitudes around, you know, all blacks don't cry. Mm. Men should toughen up and shouldn't go to therapy, say. Mm. Um, so in terms of our, our kind of Western culture, I think there's something about the idealization of self-sufficiency right that we have in our mm. society that you should be able to do it on your own um, you shouldn't have to rely on people you should be able to exist and fix it yourself do it yourself cope with it yourself and not depend on other people and if you're not managing or even coping there's something deeply flawed about you that's right 
Yeah, yeah. The idea of dependence mm. is like unthinkable. Mm. To acknowledge that I'm not okay and I need help can be especially hard in our society, I think. Obviously, your suicide attempt very nearly ended your life. If you could go back and sit down next to yourself that day, what would you say to yourself? I'd just hug me mm. to keep her. I'd just, fuck, bro, why you want to do that? Should <laughs> I activate the floodgates now, bro? I would hug me and I would say, it's okay, bro. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. That's all I do. When I wait for myself to talk. Yeah, bro. Power of a hug, bro. That, do you understand the hug I'm talking about? The long, this, strong. It's that strong hug. It's like, bro. I'm not going to let you go. Yeah, you, you feel it. There's that hug. Yeah, bro. I can't put it. It's that, it's that, it's that hug, bro. That's what I'll give myself. And I'm like, got you, bro. It's going to be okay. And whatever it is that you're carrying, it's two of us now. Whatever it takes. Mm. Casting your mind back again to like before that attempt, did anyone ever ask you directly if you were thinking of taking your own life? No, not once. Nobody ever asked me that question. And what do you think would have happened if they did? Oh, bro, I probably would have just said, no, what are you talking about? Or I probably would have started bawling my eyes out right there in front of them. I would have been very hesitant because I would have been like, why are you asking me that question? And can I trust you mm. with that question? What would you say to someone who has noticed some changes in a friend or a family member? Maybe they're not coping with life and they've got kind of like an unsettling worry mm. that there might be a risk of suicide. Mm. What advice would you give that friend or family member? I would say make the time. Make the time to check in on that person and to make that check in 100% about that person. And if you feel you want to ask the question, ask the question. Are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you thinking about suicide? And it's important to ask those questions to then not have asked and then regret it later. We need to ask that question. I actually said this just yesterday to a brother of mine that's going through quite a bit. I said, you know, bro, whatever it takes, I'll be the guy that you can swear at, the guy that you can come and punch in the face and curse me, whatever you want because what you're going through now is pretty crappy. But to know that it's safe for you to do that, you know, I don't care what it is, I'm that guy. And be that for other people. Remember, it's not about you, it's about them. You're not taking on their heaviness, you're not taking on their pain. You're just the person who's there to be able to give a sounding board, to be able to let them put it out and into the ground, let it sink into the ground. Mm -hmm. but, um, but if it were you and you were going through a dark time, how would you want someone to love on you? Mm. Or that hug, bro. Mm. Back to that hug, eh? <laughs> yeah, bro. Come out of nowhere, just you go up to the... I've done this a few times, mate, to some to very good friends of mine, you know, when they, I see it, I'm going, I know that look in that eye. And I go up and I'd hug them. Bro, no words, they just break down and cry. And that's all it is. It's, it's just carry that, that weight for them for a little bit. What can I do if a friend or family member, if I know they're having suicidal thoughts? If you know they're having suicidal thoughts, 
yeah, maybe I have asked that question and mm. they have said yes. And mm. so now I know that they have mm. been having suicidal thoughts. Mm. What can I do? Mm. Well, be prepared to listen, understand, and provide the space for that person to be able to talk and process what they're going through. Be prepared to sit there in that dark, helpless, hopeless place with them so that they can feel understood. Often that can be enough to start shifting things. And I can't, I can't stress enough really how significant that can be. It feels like it's a very, it's not doing much, but it's actually doing a whole lot. The other thing I do want to say though is that it's important to remember what you can't do as well, what you can't take responsibility for. So you can be there to support people that you care for and love, but you can't solve all their problems. Mm. You can't be their savior. You can't be the only one who is going to be able to support them. So knowing what we can do, but also knowing the limits mm. is really important because we can't jump in that hole with them. Uh, we need to be able to recognize when other supports are needed, which is in the case of suicide is pretty much always, right? We always need to get other people involved. Usually understanding what the issue is underlying that suicide will help us identify what extra supports might be needed, whether it's financial, relationship, therapy, therapy, all sorts of things. Mm. But recognizing the limits is important and looking after ourselves in the process too. Mm -hmm. What do we know protects people against suicide? Mm. Yes, yeah, so protective factors tend to be around resources, you know, personal resources. And what I mean by that is a person who feels connected to other people, that tends to be a protective factor. Mm. A person who has meaning, meaning and something to live for. Having something to live for, that's a connection to life. And whether that something to live for is um, a family or a meaningful occupation or a faith or a cause, you know, that, mm. that, that sense of connection and purpose and purpose can be really important because when we feel disconnected the threads get very very thin what's mm. holding us into life mm. relationships in particular though i think are particularly significant when you're in those really dark spaces and there is no light you really look for the gold and you grab onto everything Every nugget of light and goodness. <laughs> okay, there's another one. And there's another bit of goodness. And so you st it starts to build. And I think that becomes your strength. And I did come out. I did come out the other side. Um, it's kind of like you always have a lump in your soul. There's always this lump. Something broke in it's mended but it's crooked <laughs> so you always have this kind of this little limp some days what's life like for you now life is good bro it's it's pretty amazing at the moment um but hey the challenges are still there but my approach to these challenges has changed it, they no longer bother me in the sense of i, I want to give up you know it's i'm excited about challenges that come now 
life is very exciting, you know. My wife and I are going into business, we're going into business for ourselves and we're, we're chasing our dreams and our goals. But wherever I can, be available. Mm. That's what I'm doing my best with now. If someone's listening to this mm. and they they've had a loved one take their own life and maybe it wasn't that long ago mm. what would you want to say to them oh man i want to say to them i'm so sorry that you have to go through this it's this is probably going to be the most painful thing you're ever going to have to do in your life but know that you will get through it the pain lessons and um, just really cherish all the really good times that you have with your loved one and talk about that stuff. And the important thing to do in these early days is talk about them a lot and talk about how you're feeling. And if you need to get counselling or you need to maybe have some just mild sleeping pills. <laughs> Or some herbal remedies. Or some not so mild ones. Or not so mild ones. Just and just see it that it's for a time and it's not for it won't last forever. At this awful, awful, terrible, sad time won't last forever. And eventually um, you will be able to talk about them again and think about them without crying. So um, go really easy on yourself. Really easy. <laughs> yeah. And can life be good again after losing someone to suicide? Yes, it can be. It can be good. Um, so I'm a, I guess a testament to that is that, yeah, life did go on and it went on well. And man, you cherish people after this and you hold them close and you're hyper vigilant about when people are struggling. <laughs> so you come out different. Yeah, life, life does become good again. There's a chance that this is a slightly, an almost kind of unfair question to ask, or one that you might just might not want to answer, basically. And tell me if that's the case. But I also know that you will have gone over a thousand what ifs in your mind. Yeah. Over the years. Mm. Obviously, George Horry had a battle with some deep and dark emotions that were all consuming mm. to him. In the midst of that battle with those feelings, can you describe what other path you wish he was able to take other than the one that he did? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I wish he'd come and seen me. I wish he had have called round <clears throat> or just reached out to one person. I think that is possibly all it would have taken. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest wish is that he could have come and seen me. And I would have done anything um, to, to save you, Hori. That, you know, I would have done anything if you had told me. Um, that's how you were feeling, if only I'd known. 
And there would have been no shame in it, honestly. And and what? If he had said to me, Deb, I can't go on anymore. I would have just said, it's okay. Just, just stay here. Just stay here until you can. And I would have probably followed him around <laughs> and made sure that he was okay until he was okay. And then more. Yeah. And what about the feelings themselves that he was obviously battling with, like the dark and hard mm. feelings? What do you wish he was able to do with those? Mm. I remember at the time, part of the grief for me was that he was in such a, a hurting place that grieved me and that he was hurting so badly. I'd probably say, why don't you just have a good cry? I won't tell anyone, <laughs> I promise you. Mm. What do you think you need to go and talk to somebody? Do you want me to help you find someone? Mm. It's like, please don't do it. Please don't do that. People don't realize their value to other people. Somebody said to me during the Tangi, there were hundreds and hundreds of people there. And this guy said to me, I don't think Hori realized how much everybody loved him. Not just liked him and thought he was a great guy, people loved him. If someone's listening to this and they are in a really hard and dark place and they're experiencing the hopelessness that we talked about before and things have become unbearable and they're not coping and they are thinking about taking their own life, what would you want to say to them? I don't want to say there's always another way. There's always another way. I want to say that there are, oh, yeah, I'm aware of all of these kind of cliches that come up like suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but that doesn't capture the, the reality of the struggle, that the struggle is real and the struggle is agonizing and nobody's denying that. Even if you need to let somebody else hold the hope for you for a time, there's always hope. Please don't give up. I know that it can feel overwhelmingly hopeless. It can feel overwhelmingly lonely in this space. The despair can feel inescapable. And yet, and yet there, there is hope. You don't have to do this on your own. And it's, it's tough and it takes courage to reach out and to let somebody know that you're struggling and to ask for help. But you might be surprised at who's there for you. You might be surprised that there can be hope, there can be joy, there can be healing, there can be recovery and there can be a different ending to your story. Your life is worth so much more than you think it is. 
You still have so much to give that you don't even know about and don't think that your life has been a waste of time because it hasn't. There's still so much more ahead and just know that people really love you and they really do care about you and there's people around you that you don't know about that will do anything to keep you here and you, you staying here is, is worth everything to some people. And um, if I was in a room with someone now, I would, I would beg them. I would say, please, please don't do this. Um, you'll regret it. <laughs> you know, there's so, much, there's so much ahead of you that is worth staying for and we won't be able to make any more memories if you go so yeah that's what i would say and i would i would personally beg someone to stay i would hold on to their leg <laughs> and not let go i honestly would yeah so people need to know that that's what people would do for them Bro, sis, if you're listening, if you hear one, if you hear me, the important thing is I want you to recognize is that one is that you can hear my voice. Two is that you're listening to this podcast. And I want you to understand that you're not crazy. You're not stupid in the head. It's okay. You may not know me, but I love you. I really want you to know that I love you. That's coming from a stranger. But don't you dare quit on yourself. Don't you dare. You matter to me whether I know you or not. Love you, bro. Love you, sis. If you haven't heard it, you're hearing it now. It's okay. That voice you're hearing in your mind that's telling you that you're useless, that's wrong. That voice that says that you're not worth anything, that voice is wrong. You are valuable. If you did not belong here, you would not have ever been born. You belong here. Somewhere, somewhere up in whatever sky, whether you believe in God or not, something, someone decided that this earth needs someone to be here to make it worth existing. They chose you. So your life has value. You have purpose. You are important. You're not small, you're not useless, you're not thick, you're not stupid. You are chosen, you are loved. And I want you to say that out loud to yourself. You wake up in the morning, you say that you say it 50 times, I am loved, I am loved, I am loved, I am loved, I am loved. You say that for a whole month and you keep saying it till you wake up every morning, it's now, you know it's automatic. You belong. You tell that voice it's wrong. And what could that person do? What might be the next thing that person could do? Reach out. I don't know you. You can find me online. i tell you what, I've got some amazing friends that could help you. I may not be able to help you, but i got some great friends that I can connect you with. I'm more than happy to tell my story up in the open so that you can find hope in it. But if everyone else is not listening, I'm here. I may not reply to your message straight away, 
But if you find me, just meet some of my friends. Reach out. Please help. I'd like to say a particularly big thank you to Joe and Debbie. Their stories are not easy ones to share with the world, and I know they've put them out there because they want to give hope to people in dark places. If you want to reach out and talk to someone, here's a list of helplines. Calling one of these numbers could be a good first step, confidentially telling someone what you've been going through. If you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you can call 1737 at any time of the day or night, or call Lifeline on 0800 543 354. In the UK, you can call Samaritans on 116 123, or the Suicide Prevention Helpline on 0800 689 5652. In the US and Canada, you can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline for free on 988. In Australia, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. If you're in any other country, you can go to findahelpline.com to find your local helpline. And I'd just like to say that everyone's experience with and reaction to this topic is unique and different. So if you found something has been stirred up for you, even if you don't know how or why, I encourage you to look after yourself and seek support. A massive thank you to Nettie for generously bringing her wisdom and expertise to this conversation. And a big thanks to the Lovett Media team for their support and guidance. You may remember Debbie mentioning she's a writer, and part of her grieving process was to write poems which she's compiled into a book called The Long Cold Nights of June. She gave me a copy of the book, and I found many of the poems really powerful. You can buy a copy of The Long Cold Nights of June by Debbie Kareen on Amazon. One great thing about podcasts is that they can be listened to confidentially in the comfort of your own home. And with a topic like suicide, listening to this episode could be a good first step for someone before they feel like they are able to reach out. So please do share this with anyone you think could do with hearing it. As ever, follow the podcast on your podcast app, If you've got 10 seconds, rate the show. If you've got five minutes, post a review. Thanks a lot for listening.